0: So, as some of you know, I watch a lot of Blue Jays baseball because I'm trying to build up an immunity to disappointment. And uh, but every now and then, you know, it's it's worth staying up. And most of the time, it's pain. And when they have late games that go late into the evening, and if they're playing West Coast teams, and it's early in the morning, you're watching these games and. You know, most of the time, it just feels like, just shut it off. You know, just shut it off. But then every once in a while, you know, there's an extra innings, game-winning walk-off home run, like this last week, or there's a game-winning grand slam, and you're like, yes, it was, I was in my basement by myself this week, yeah! And those are rare moments. And um, when we gather together as the church on Sundays for worship, or we open up God's word and we look to it. If we don't have the game-changing grace of Jesus Christ front and center, then a lot of times the trials of our life, the difficulty of, of uh, circumstance, the battles you have with your physical body, your physical health, or perhaps your mental health, will have a way of making you just shut it off. We're losing. I'm losing. Just shut it off. It's over. Shut the singing off. Shut the preaching off. Shut the prayer off. Shut the scriptures off. I'm done. But here's the thing. The soul-lifting grace of Jesus at the center of our worship, at the center of your scripture reading is the interpretive key Is the interpretive lens Jesus Christ is the key that opens the scriptures the key that opens our hearts the key that opens our eyes without the gospel at the center you know the entire Old Testament just sounds like shut it off it's hopeless there's some bright spots in there but for the most part this thing is spiraling but when when you look at the whole entire Old Testament through the lens of the gospel You realize it's not hopeless. God did not leave us hopeless. God did not leave us lost. God actually came for the lost. This morning we're going to continue our study of the book of Romans in chapter 2. And as you turn to Romans chapter 2, we're going to read the first 16 verses today. And this is a letter that starts out very much like a tone, you know, it's a graphic literary nosedive as the apostle gives us this color commentary on how humanity was headed toward an unavoidable eternal game over. But the apostle, he had something in mind when he wrote this. And we need to keep that very same thing in mind as we read this. And what that thing is, we're going to explore and expand and marvel at as we unpack this text today. Romans chapter 2, starting in verse 1. You, therefore, have no excuse, you who pass judgment on others. For at whatever point you judge one another, you're condemning yourself, because you who pass judgment do the same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose that as a mere human, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do the same things, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you show contempt for the riches of God's kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath, when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. God will render to each one according to the works that they have done. To those who, by persistence in doing good, seek glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and reject the truth, but follow unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also to the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also to the Greek. For God shows no partiality. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it's not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when the Gentiles, who don't have the law, by nature do what the law requires, they are a lot of themselves, even though they don't have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. And on that day, when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. This is God's word. Now, in chapter 1 of Romans, which is where we uh, have kind of been, in chapter 1, Paul is showing how, uh, you know, people of non-faith can reject the grace of God. And now, he turns the scalpel towards people who have self-righteous faith and how they can reject the grace of God. That's what's going on here. Paul Paul knows that that if there are folks who have self-righteous faith, they've read the first chapter of Romans and they've... They've kind of got a self-righteous attitude going on and they're thinking, (laughs) oh, that's a nasty list of sin and I'm not doing anything that. I got my checklist out and I don't think I've done anything on that list of sins and I'm doing pretty good and those people definitely deserve judgment because they're bad and I don't deserve judgment because I'm good. And Paul anticipates all of that. He knows what self-righteous people are like. Thank God I'm not like that person. That's my self-righteous voice. That's what I hear in my head when I'm being self-righteous, and that's how I imagine other people when they're being self-righteous. Well, thank God the only sin I struggle with is the occasional bad attitude. That's the worst thing that you've, that's, have you ever been in a situation? Have you ever been that person who, you know, you're, you're, maybe you're together in a Bible study and people are sharing things and you're like, what am I going to share? I'm going to squeak out this little thing, you know, the, uh, to communicate how sanctified I am. One time I took a paper clip from work and it, it just ate me up inside because I took it home for personal use. Whoa. And everybody else in the room's like, okay, that's the level of uh, sharing we're going with. Okay. Paul anticipates all of this. We're going to look at three things from this text this morning. The first is the irony and the outworking of our judgment. The second thing is the criteria for God's judgment. And then thirdly, the verdict on our judgment. So first, the irony and the outworking of our judgment. Right out of the gate in verse 1, there's an irony here. And the irony of judgment is, at the core, we're all guilty of the same sin. Paul actually uses those words. Same sin. And if you've read the list of sin in Romans 1, it's pretty intense. There's quite a range there. There's things you can look at and go, I've definitely done that. There's things you can look at and go, I've never done that. But Paul says something pretty bold. He goes, at whatever point you judge somebody else, you're doing this exact same thing. How can he possibly say that? What is he possibly doing? Um, See, when you look at, when the Bible lists sins, it lists them for the purpose of us being thoughtful to consider and confess the sinful propensity of our own hearts, not rank the subjective hideousness of other people's actions. Of course, there's different consequences on sin. Sin does not have the same consequence, but in verse 1, Paul explicitly says we do the same thing. And what he's doing is he's taking a page out of Jesus' textbook because in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says right he, some bold things. He equates murder with having hatred in your heart. He equates adultery with looking on a woman lustfully. He equates. He says it's the same thing. And that's something that the, the, to the self-righteous mind, it's impossible to, to conceive that it could possibly be the same thing. How could this possibly be the same thing? Well, for the kids who are in the service today, I'm going to give you a modern-day parable to help you understand why Paul would say something that bold. Right? If you look in your notes, you'll notice that the word irony, it means something that you wouldn't expect. Right? It's ironic. Okay, so here's the modern-day parable to explain why Paul would say this. Once upon a time, there was a company named Pontiac, and they made a car in 1983 called the Fiero. And I was eight years old when that car came out. It was the poor man's Ferrari. It was mid-engined, and I was like eight years old, and I was like, this car is so cool. And uh, the problem with the Pontiac Fiero was that it was combustible. If If the engine oil was low in conjunction with a couple other problems, it would burst into flames. So they stopped making it. Because it didn't matter how cool it looked on the outside, it was a flammable, dangerous garbage car. And, and so what Paul is saying is, if you're self-righteous about other people's sin, it's like owning a Pontiac Fiero and going to a Fiero convention and waxing your red Fiero and going, oh my gosh, why would anybody ever choose a blue Fiero? I cannot... I don't know why anybody would even would even consider that i mean i would never drive a blue fiero well the problem is you've got two different paint jobs but you have the precisely the same problem and what paul is getting at in this text when he says that in this which is the same reason that jesus said what he said in the sermon on the mount is that underneath the different paint jobs of our sin we all have the same fundamental problem and we all have need the same fundamental solution our problem is the brokenness of sin and the solution is the grace of christ And when you consider this, for example, take the sin of selfishness. When we fall into it, and we all do, what could selfishness look like in this room? Selfishness can lead to murder. Selfishness could lead to adultery. Selfishness can lead to you abandoning your family and children. Selfishness can lead to the quote-unquote big stuff. But what else could selfishness lead to in your life and in mine? It could manifest, I don't know how many people there are in here this morning, 70 or 80, it could manifest that many ways. A lot of different paint jobs for the same fundamental problem. And so Paul is right out of the gate provoking the church to consider consider this as he flips from Romans 1 and into Romans 2. You see, the irony of our judgment is that We're all guilty of the same sin. But the outworking of that kind of judgment, if you think about that kind of judgment, outworking by the church is it creates comparison in the church. And the problem with creating a culture of comparison in the church is that the delusion of superiority is the kiss of death to unity. The delusion of superiority is the kiss of death to intimacy. The delusion of superiority is the kiss of death to camaraderie. Right? It destroys friendships and marriages and work relationships and churches. It de- the delusion of superiority. And so, Paul says we're, it, you have to fundamentally understand that underneath it all, we're guilty of the same things. Now, there's an important distinction that we need to make in understanding when the Bible talks about judgment. Because here, he's condemning uh, judgment. Romans 2, he's condemning a very specific kind of judgment. But in, if I was preaching Colossians 2 this morning or if I preach Colossians 2 next week, he says people who are spirit-filled exercise judgment. In fact, that's the sign of the spirit-filled life is that you kind of go through life exercising judgment. So you'd say, well, what is going on? Romans 2 says no judgment. Colossians 2 says judgment. What's going on? The scriptures do not condemn the wise use of exercising judgment on things that contradict the ways of God while humbly acknowledging that we ourselves need the grace of God. This passage is condemning the self-righteousness that would cause those inside the church to look at those outside the church and say, they deserve judgment because they're bad, but I don't deserve judgment because I'm good, and that's just dead wrong. And so the Apostle Paul comes right out of the gate with getting us to consider this in verse 3 he pushes this argument forward by saying you know he plays the human card he says do you suppose you know that as a mere human you're going to escape the judgment of God you know consider the audience it's not the general public at Rome it's the church in Rome and he wants the church to understand that nobody outside the church is too far from the reach of God's grace and there's nobody inside the church who's so good that we no longer need God's grace and that's why in verse 4 The text shifts in verse 4, and he starts talking about the kindness of God. He says, says, you know, the, the text says the kindness of God leads to repentance. See, what he's trying to do is invite them into humility to consider their need for the gospel. This is where the letter is flowing. Why are you and I in church today? We are not here today because of our goodness. We're here because of God's kindness. Right? What was the catalyst for you to repent? And put your trust in Jesus whenever it was that you did that. What was the catalyst for that? It wasn't your goodness. It was his kindness. And so marveling at God's kindness, that's the game changer for us here at Redeemer. And how we relate to the people who are sitting around us. And how we relate to the people who are outside of this church community. See, every Sunday God calls us to rest. And he calls us to remember his kindness and his patience with us. And then he sends us out to be ministers of kindness and patience towards others. But we're not going to, we're not going to be able to be bold ministers of, of God's kindness if fundamentally at the core we think we're here because of our own goodness. And so this text is provoking us to see that really when we fall into self-righteousness, we'll acknowledge the existence of God, but we really deny our need for the kindness of God. And so when you get to verse 5, he describes some hearts, and he uses words to describe the hearts, and and he uses the words hard and impenitent. Your your English translations may say other other things, but that's a very specific use of words in the Greek that are together there, the hard and impenitent heart. And in the Greek language, those two words put together are always used when they're describing people who are um, oriented uh, toward idolatry. So there's this is now exposing the a new form of idolatry and it's the idolatry to morality where on the outside you can be doing good godly and moral things which is which is good but it's not good if you're priding yourself in those good and godly moral things and you think you're being saved by the good godly moral things so what where where paul goes with the argument here is he says you know the self righteous they think they're attracting god's blessing but they're actually pointing fingers at those outside who they think deserve judgment, and they don't, and they think they're attracting the blessing, but they're actually incurring God's judgment. And that's the flow of the text. So the irony and the outworking of our judgment, the irony of the judgment is we're all guilty of sin, and the outworking of it is that it creates comparison. But let's move on to the second thing. So what is the criteria for God's judgment? He gives it to us in verse 6. It says that each one is judged according to their works god's criteria god's criteria for judgment is works it's our works and they're not according to our standard they're according we're judged according to his standard so of course none of this is good news at all but paul's building a case see we're only at romans 2 there's 16 chapters he's building a case for something and so what does it mean that we're being sta- be judged by God's standard? For those of you who might be here today exploring Christian faith, you might be thinking, yeah, this is precisely my problem with Christianity. Oh, my goodness, this whole sermon has just been judgy, judge, judge, talking about judge, judge, judgment. I don't want a God of judgment. Well, here's the thing. Um, God is not a cosmic perfectionist. He's a loving Father. And by his perfect and righteous judgment, let me define that for you. You see, in the Christian faith, our God is a trinity, right? He's not a singularity. If you have a God who is a singularity, then that God would have spun the cosmos into existence from sheer power. But we have a God who is a trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, three persons. And before the creation of the cosmos, what the scripture tells us is our eternal God was enjoying loving relationship within the Godhead long before we were ever here. Ergo, the creation of the universe, the creation of you and I and everything was spun forward not not by sheer power, it was spun out of love. See, the fundamental force that caused the creation, when you read Genesis, as God says, let us make man in our image, and, and, and God is looking on everything and saying it's very good. And when he says, very, you know, in the Hebrew language, good, what's going on here is it's not just like being at the Toyota plant and checking a box and saying, you know, that part isn't defective. Good means there's, like a, there's a celebration. There's, there, God is dancing over creation. So the divine standard we're talking about here, it's a divine standard of love. When Jesus summarized the law in Matthew 22, and he said, if you're going to keep the law, you can hang it all on this. He says, love God perfectly and love everybody else perfectly. That, and you've kept the law. You can hang the whole law on that. The perfect love and worship of God, the perfect love of others. So the this, this, this standard is a perfect loving standard by which, regardless of your worldview, none of us are living a perfectly loving life. Well, we just simply aren't. And it stands to reason that if there is a God who created the cosmos, his standard would be uh, significantly higher than ours. And so we've got this God who spun the cosmos into, ex- into existence because of love, and so he judges us. The judgment of God is according to works, which is a life of perfect love. So when you get to verses 11 through 15, you find that th- this is all being blown out as God's... He's not partial. His divine law is... is, is uh, Is being uh, that's the standard whether you're regardless of your culture, your nation, your class, your creed, we're all being judged according to this divine law. And then in verse 15, he introduces the idea of conscience because he's again he's anticipating. Well, somebody's going to say, somebody's going to say, oh, well, what if they don't know the scriptures? What if they don't know? And and as Paul in Pax Romans, he's going to say, you can look at the creation and know that there's a God. You can now here he's going to appeal to conscience in verse 15, and you know it's that external divine standard that is outside us that's unspoken that we all kind of expect people to understand. It's like whether you're a Christian or an agnostic or an atheist you say to your children, you know, do the right thing. You know, do the right thing. Um, and what do you mean by the right thing? You don't, you, you, don't, you don't mean you know, comply with the laws and the regulations of the country which you are a citizen. That's not what you mean. When you say do the right thing you mean in each specific situation where there's no written law use your conscience and be a loving person. That's what you mean regardless of your worldview. And so Paul's introducing that here, and he's going, where do you think that came from, this idea of right and wrong? It's written in human hearts. It's the divine standard of this loving God who we're accountable to. C.S. Lewis is a great apologist. He wrote a book called Mere Christianity. He was an atheist philosopher and writer who came to faith, and in his book he writes this. Everyone has heard something like, how'd you like it if somebody did that to you? Or give me a bit of your orange, I gave you a bit of mine. See, when we say this, we're appealing to a standard of goodness that we expect others to know about. So the criteria for God's judgment is works, which leads us to the third thing, right? Because this is where this is all leading. It's leading to Paul's conversations about judgment day, the day when God will judge and his judgment will be final and it will be just. So, so here's the third thing. What is the verdict on our judgment? If God judges according to works, which he does, plainly says it in verse 6, and the standard for the works by which we're all judged is perfection. None of this is good news. So what is the verdict on our judgment? Well, if on Judgment Day we're judged on the basis of works, the question is whose works will you trust in? Whose works will you stand in? Whose works will you be clothed in? That's where the letter to the Romans is headed. That's the spoiler alert. Will you be clothed in your works or the works of Christ? The verdict on your judgment is this. For all who are in Christ, we already have our judgment. We already have it. And the verdict is not guilty. That is the verdict. That is the non-negotiable verdict. When Jesus Christ was on the cross, the last words that he spoke were, it is finished in the Greek, tetelestai. Tetelestai means paid in full, it's over, it's done. Jesus Christ on the cross did not make your salvation possible. And then you, and the great life that you live this week coming up, make it actual. No. Because in that equation, in that construct, that's poor theology because you're the Savior. In that construct, Jesus made something possible that by your works you make actual. And that's dead wrong. That's the false gospel. Jesus Christ is sufficient. And that's where this letter is actually headed. And so... In the end, we're going to be judged on whether or not we've received God's kindness. Getting back to verse 4, was it not God's kindness that leads to repentance? In the end, have we received God's kindness? Have we received Christ's righteousness? Will we stand in his works or will we stand in our works? You know, the gospel is the only religion on the planet that gives you the verdict before your performance. In every other world religion, it's like the, the guru says, here's what you've got to do and then you've got to live that way and in the end you find out how it works. In the gospel, we get the verdict now based on the sufficiency and the perfection of Christ. And that's what we're saved by grace alone. We place our faith and our trust in Him. And so when you get to verse 7, verse 7 describes a person that's received the truth. Verse 8 describes a person who's rejected the truth. Truth about what? Your need for grace. That's where this argument's headed. You read chapters 3, 4, 5, that's where this is going. You see, you can reject God's grace through a life of non-faith, right? You can make something else your functional savior, or you can reject God through self-righteous faith, and you make your good works your savior. If you're at rest in the belief that Jesus is your righteousness, then imitating him will result in loving and serving others. But if you are at unrest in the belief that you have to curate your own righteousness, then your serving is not loving others. Your serving is using others, Everything you're calling serving, if in the end is getting you into God's good graces, it's not serving. It's self-serving. All those things that you think are good works, they're not good works. They're the opposite of good works because you need them to achieve and curate something. And so the good news of the gospel is that Christ has done it all. That is why Paul sends Romans 1 and 2, and 3, and a bit of 4, into a literary nosedive to get us to see and marvel at the glory of what Christ has done for us. And so you see, that's why also in verse 16, Paul talks about God judging the secrets of the heart. He's warning the self-righteous who think they can flex on their good works resume and think they can stand before God in a righteousness that they've achieved. But you can't. Because if all of your serving was self-serving, you didn't do any of it for pleasure. You did all of it for payment. But God is perfectly just and loving and wise. And so the righteous standard that he requires of a loving life, it's got to be received. It's like, how many of you kids are in here and your parents say to you, you can play video games, you can go outside, you can play basketball, you can do this thing once your room is clean. And you go, okay, sweet. So you run upstairs and you clean your room and it takes you somewhere between seven and eight seconds. And then you come back down and then you say, can I go do this thing now? My room is clean. And then your parents will say to you, it is? And you're like, yeah. And they're like, are you sure? And you're like, I'm totally sure it's clean. And then they say, is it your version of clean or my version of clean? And you go, "Ah!" And then you go back upstairs and then you do their version of clean. (laughs) Right? Because they're like, of course it's clean. You can't see any items. They're all under the bed. And so what Romans 1 and 2 is saying is, We can't achieve God's version of clean. We need someone to achieve it for us. And so the gospel is good news because we don't have a God who distanced himself from us in judgment and crossed his arms and said, get it right. We know where this letter is going. Our God came to bear the full weight of our judgment and he stretched his arms out because we can't get it right. We already have the verdict of not guilty. Apart from all of our imperfect attempts at obedience, because Jesus Christ provided perfect obedience in His act of obedience, Jesus Christ lived the loving life that we should have lived, but we're not. And in His passive obedience, He went to the cross and He took all of our sin, and He died a substitutionary death. And by faith, His righteous record is ours, and this is the good news of the gospel. God's judgment is according to works. Salvation is according to grace because Christ has done the work. And that's why Sunday mornings is a celebration for us, church. And so now we have a completely different relationship with works, right? The life that we now live, the choices that we make, the things that we do, church, they matter. But not because God needs them, because your family needs them. The people around you need them. The greater city of Kitchener-Waterloo benefits from them. You're loving good works. It serves our neighbors because Christ is sufficient. So the relationship between what God's grace is for us and then what the renewing power of God's grace does in us, this is an important distinction to understand. So again, uh, let me help the kids understand what I'm talking about. I'm going to talk about these two separate things, about Christ's works being done and our works still being important but not for God. So kids, think about it this way. At our house, we have this lemon tree. Susan loves plants. She's got this beautiful lemon tree. We've got a lot of plants. We're, we might be a few plants away from needing to change our doorbell chime to the Jurassic Park theme, maybe. Just welcome to our house. There's a lot of plants. We have this lemon tree, and there are, there's lemons on it. There's a couple lemons. And the, the, the fruit does not provide life to the tree. The fruit is not sustaining the tree. The fruit is evidence that there's life in the tree. And so when, as Christians, we endeavor to live in obedience to Christ and turn from our sin, the good works that we do are not providing life to our salvation. They are not sustaining our salvation. They are evidence of the grace of God has achieved our salvation, and therefore now, apart from any earning, only imitation, we desire to live to God's glory. God's judgment is according to works, and Christ has provided the works. And so for all who trust in Christ, we have no fear when we come to these scriptures that speak about the day of judgment. Because 2,000 years ago on a Roman cross, your Savior took your judgment. And God is just. And therefore... You will not answer for what Christ has paid for. I know there are some want to keep the church in line by preaching theological double jeopardy, but that is not faithful. It's a mockery of the sufficiency of Christ. He's done it all. And so now in Christ we're free. Free to do what? Not free to be our own gods. Free to live to the glory of God. Free to enjoy him forever. The first few opening chapters of romans they take this graphic literary nosedive as the apostle gives his color commentary on how it's the bottom of the ninth and sin and death has been pitching a no-hitter and apart from divine intervention we're all headed toward an eternal game over but the apostle had something in mind when he wrote this and you and i need to keep it in mind when we read this and it's this god's grace bats last let's pray